Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Investigate Europe podcast. And my name is Oliver Moldenhauer. I'm the executive director of Investigate Europe. And this podcast is where my colleague Sinduri Nanda Kumar and I talk to our investigative journalists about their most recent findings and the way they work. Today's podcast is about the third of our series on climate investigations. It is about something called the Energy Charter Treaty. It has been around for 25 years but has not been very visible at all until very recently. Now it's a real storm. We have published lots of things NGOs are doing. It's a political discussion. And I'm very happy to welcome here Leila Mignano, my colleague, who coordinated this research on the Energy Charter Treaty. Leila has been a reporter with Investigate Europe now for almost exactly four years, and she wrote several investigative books about the French army and their violation of human rights in war zones. Leila, ça va en Paris? Oui, ça va bien, et vous? À Berlin? Berlin, well, it's going. The pandemic. But let's come to the Energy Charter Treaty. That's a pretty arcane subject. What is it? And why did you look at that? I've never heard uh, about that uh, before. It's one of our German colleague, Harald Schumann, who told us about it at the end of his uh, gas uh, research. He, told, mm -hmm. he talked with the NGO, who told uh, him about the existence of this very unknown uh, treaty, very technical and very old treaty, who allowed energy company to sue uh, states sometime for billions of euros for their lost uh, profits. Actually, at the beginning, we, we, we didn't believe this was really existing. We thought that maybe there was some misunderstanding, but in fact, we just start digging. And actually, we were the only uh, investigative journalists we have been digging on this treaty before. We start digging and we realized that what the NGOs uh, were saying at first, that uh, mm -hmm. these uh, private courts were existing, then we we start working and then we did that for three months. Mm -hmm. So what did you find out? We realized that some companies had already started to file low case to file complaint against state because of their um, green reform. We have observed that in uh, Germany, we have observed that in France, we have op observed that in Holland, in Italy, in different countries, very big energy companies started to file complaints against state and ask for billions of euros because of their green reform. So what you are saying, if, if a government wants to follow through on their climate promises and reduce fossil fuel installations then the owners of the installations can go somewhere and sue them? Yes, they can go in front of private tri tribunal, private court called uh, arbitration court and ask for billion of euro, yes. Because, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, in the German case, uh, closing a, a nuclear power plant or in France because the French government wanted to uh, forbid fossil fuel extraction in the French soil or uh, in Italy because they, they wanted to close a petrol uh, platform in the ocean. And these these private courts are totally uh, opaque. They are they operate in secret. There is no publicity on the procedure, on the documents they use, on the money they ask. There is 
uh, and we are talking only about public money. All this should be public because we are, if the, the state is losing uh, its court, it will take the money to pay this company from the public budget. Anyhow, all, all these procedures are secret. So, but what happens if there is a law in a country, a, a parliament of a country decides they don't want any more oil rigs near their coast? If people don't like that, they can go to the courts in that country. Why do they need a special arbitration tribunal? What we discover is that these special tri tribunals were more uh, favorable to the companies. Actually, 60% uh, of the decision they have taken, the decision we know, mm -hmm. uh, were uh, in favor of the energy investor. So it's these private courts are in majority uh, gi uh, giving um, good decision for the investors. So do I get the right that on top of the normal court system, there is this extra international thing that is not controlled by, by the people and the democratic procedure that can overrule national lawmaking? Yes. That sounds pretty incredible. Yes, they could go in front of the national court, but they don't go in front of these national courts because here they can benefit from the total secrecy, they can benefit from favorable uh, decision, and no one is there to control what they are going to ask, how much they are going to ask, and if actually they win or they lose. So I think it is... It's in the interest of private investors to go in front of this court. And actually, the last and most important thing is that they can ask much more money mm -hmm. in front of this court okay. than they would obtain if they would go to national courts. In national courts in France, we never give 50 billion euros to, to a private investor, even if the French state uh, would have uh, done the worst thing that he could have done, you know. And that was happened for what happened in the UK's case. It was not a climate case, but anyhow, the Russian state was condemned to pay 50 billions of euro of public money. Well, at the end, he didn't pay for the moment, but that's what a private investor can win in front of this court. It makes sense for a company to like this treaty, but this is a treaty actually signed by by governments. Why did they do that? And why do they still have that? Actually, it's an old treaty. It was signed at the end of the 90s, at the end of the Cold War, when the West had to protect their energy interests in the former Soviet uh, countries. Mm -hmm. And so they decided to sign that because they saw that they thought that this country were unstable. And that's why actually some of the experts and NGO called this treaty post-colonial treaty. But uh, now this weapon is turning on the Western uh, state face mm -hmm. because now they are the one who can be sued because now the situation, okay. the international and geo geopolitical situation is not the same anymore. So now they are the ones who, who are sued. And now today it's Spain who is the state the most sued with this treaty. Ah, so it was a little bit like when they intended, when they invented the thing, it was something worse than governments thought, okay, this is good for our companies when they deal with like uh, Kazakhstan. But now it's the other way around. Now it's um, the governments that are restrained are actually in Europe. Leila, you're right that this is a big problem 
with regard to climate change. Can you explain that big, uh, a little bit? And can you explain how big the problem is? In the next years, in the next decade, the European states are going to be obliged to fill their climate target. Regarding uh, Paris agreements, for instance, they will need to reduce half of their emission of uh, CO2. That mm -hmm. is the goal they sign. For that, in order to fill that goal, they need to pass some reform to adopt some law Mm -hmm. And if a company can sue them for billions of euros, if they pass this green law, then that's a problem. Then mm -hmm. that green transition, tra green transition can't happen. So governance could be afraid to do the right thing. Exactly. It's Damocles' sword on the, the, on the state who want to pass a green law. And actually, that's what happened in France, for instance. When the Hulot Ministry of Ecology uh, wanted to pass his law to uh, extract, uh, to forbid extraction of fossil fuel energy in the French soil, a company called Vermillon, a Canadian petrol company, threatened the French state to pursue him in front of the arbitration court. So the French government, then at the end, didn't even fight for the law. They just withdraw, resign, and actually this law was never presented to the parliament. So that is a risk, and this risk is a reality. That what happened in France, and that could happen tomorrow in uh, other European countries. Ah, so it can be not just suing, but just the fear of being sued that makes government change their policies. Yes, just the threat is enough. Our research shows that the value of fossil fuel infrastructure protected by the ECT is worth 344.6 billion euros in the European Union plus Switzerland and UK. That's a huge number. Yes, actually it's a big number. It's I think twice the European uh, budget, annual oh, budget, okay. like uh, 600 uh, euro, 644 euro per uh, um, European citizen. So it's very big, but actually it's the low scale Because we were very conservative during this calculation. We just took the value of the different structures, fossil fuel structure in Europe, but we didn't take in consideration the money in compensation they could ask. So actually, uh, this is really the low scale. And that's, of course, already enormous. So everyone now can guess how much this could be, how heavy this threat is for the future. Leila, you... Also talk about the conflicts of interest in the Secretariat of the treaty. What is that about? Actually, this treaty has an administration who is managing it. It is a group of less than 30 uh, people uh, working in Brussels and that uh, since uh, the 90s are dealing with the relation and the network of the different countries, so the 55 contracting parties, they are working in the expansion of the treaty. In Africa, for instance, for the moment, they are working, they are answering the question of the member state because they are the experts on the treaty. So we decided to dig in that very strange administration and we realized that some of the employees had a very serious conflict of interest with the fossil fuel industry. What was the conflict of interest? There, is two, there was two people in particular in this, uh, in this secretariat. One was the head of uh, expansion called Marat Terterov. He had company and uh, non-profit association 
Some he created and left afterwards. Mm -hmm. Some he was working inside. So you have some think tank, for instance, where he was invited very important company, uh, energy company, like, for instance, Gazprom, Nord Stream. All these people are in all these companies are involved in ECTKs, so that's a conflict of interest. He even creates companies where he's like acting as a consultant in uh, the energy sector, which is totally forbidden by the contract that he has signed with the ECT. So that was the different revelation we made in our investigation. And of course, that's an issue when the treaty is now today engaged in a modernization process, in a greener modernization process. When you see that people in charge of managing this process are involved in conflict of interest, that's not very um, encouraging for the future. It doesn't seem to be indeed. As a professional journalist, you confronted, uh, like we always do, the people with the criticism before we're going to publish it so people can give their voice and reply to that. Did you do that here as well? Of course, we asked to everyone involved in that because these two persons, so this Marat Terterov and his colleagues, the special envoy for the MENA region, uh, Mermet Oguchu, were uh, asked to reply to all our uh, revelation, but we asked the EU Commission as well, because the EU Commission knew about this conflict of interest as we prove it. So we asked to them, we asked the uh, different member states as well. Because, of course, if this type of conflict of interest happened for years, that means that there were a, a serious lack of control on this administration which is actually financed by public money. Your money, my money, all the taxpayer money in Europe is financed this, this organization, which has 4 million euro per year budget. So there should have been a tighter control on this organization and the European institution didn't play their role in that. But of course, uh, when we ask them, they decline all responsibility uh, on this uh, lack of control. And uh, Marat Terterov said that there were no conflict of interest because he didn't win a penny out of it. Mm -hmm. Of course, to have a conflict of interest is not in You don't need to win a penny no. <laughs> for, for that. So that was the answer we got. So we stand by our reporting. Yes. Leila, looking into this arcane treaty and this whole world of 25-year-old treaties to pretend to fight against climate change, what was the most surprising thing for you? That no one knew about it. Okay. That was really, for me, a surprise. Even um, NGOs who are specialized in uh, environmental issues, they didn't know about it because uh, in France, for instance, I interview many of them. Uh, who are really experts on the environmental issue. Some of them have vague knowledge about it, mm -hmm. but most of them, they didn't know about it. And I think that's uh, really uh, strange. And uh, actually, that was in the interest of the company that uh, we are suing, that it keeps the secret. So, of course, our interest as an investigative reporter is to break that secret and to show that when uh, public money is involved, they should be all, all the procedures should be public. What was the reaction when Investigate Europe actually published the investigation? Actually, uh, we were lucky, or we made a good work, I don't know. <laughs> the outreach of our investigation was, was very important 
We got uh, on the social networks thousands, thousands of uh, retweets of people commenting. Actually, there was like people like Greta Thunberg or Thomas Piketty who retweet uh, our investigation. Mm -hmm. Animation was uh, seen like a hundred and thousand time at, at the least. The last time I, I watched last week, the most for me the most surprising is. Um, how the petition wrote by the NGO had a great success. Because after our investigation, actually, the same day, a group of European NGO published a petition against uh, this treaty. And they were using a lot of information, and especially uh, these uh, data, the calculation we made, and the different revelations we made to push their, uh, their petition. And today, there were like more than 1 million signatures on wow. this on this petition. So I think that we have made uh, our job and that more and more people now knows about this treaty. Between 2 and 5 March, there was a new round of negotiations about the treaty. Can you tell us about it? Before talking about the round of negotiation, maybe we should talk about the process of modernization. Now, since a few months, a process of modernization is engaged. Uh, that means that the different member states are discussing of, of modernizing this old treaty. And there is a strong debate between the EU member states, between the state who wants to protect fossil fuel energy, to remain protecting fossil fuel energy, and the state, like for instance, France or Spain, who really want to stop protecting the fossil fuel energy, or actually what they, they, what they declare in official uh, letters sent to the EU. So there is this strong battle. And during this, this modernization process, you have different rounds of negotiation. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of March, it was a very important round of negotiation because they were discussing a special article on fossil fuel, mm -hmm. on what type of energy could be protected uh, by the treaty, by the modernized version of the treaty. But unfortunately, nothing really happened. There were no revolution. They didn't vote for the stop, uh, protect, for the stop protecting the fossil fuel energy or the other way around. I think it's still the status quo. Leila, you talked a lot about how not many people researched into the Energy Carter Treaty before. Can you tell us a little bit how much work this actually was? How much time uh, went into this research? It was a lot of work. We have uh, worked for three months and there is a, I was a member of the organization team uh, with my colleague from Bulgaria and uh, for Germany. Uh -huh. So we had to, to organize that. And it was very difficult because it was very technical. It's a law text. It's a legal text. So you have to dig in that. And that's not, that's not easy, especially because it's an old text, so there is no real expert on it. Usually journalists, when they work, they call experts, they call uh, lawyers, they call people. Who, and at that time, the, the experts were very, very uh, rare. <laughs> no one really knew, so that was a fight. But on the other side, the fact that no journalist has have been working on this story before, that was really helpful for us. Because when you ask questions, when the same people are questioned by 100 journalists and you have nothing new and they have you have already read all what they have declared now every uh, today on the uh, ECT everything was new so that mm -hmm. was very helpful for us and and I think that's good on the secretariat the pressure were the pressure was very high 
because uh, we had to be very careful on the legal issues. We had to check everything, especially that we had received uh, very serious threats from uh, one of the protagonists of our story. Mm-hmm. He threatened us to to pursue us, not only in a legal way, because he said it, that he would pursue us uh, with all the means that he, he knew. So, um, wow. so, of course, that was... Uh, that was taken seriously. You don't threat a journalist uh, like that. And uh, so that's it. But we are uh, a very good team. We have worked on that and uh, helped each other very much on this period by fact-checking everything, control everything that we, were, that we would write. And uh, I think, well, that uh, helped us in this uh, stress moment. Ten journalists for three months. We both know by no means we can finance this by selling the articles where's that money coming from of course this couldn't cover the the work of uh, 10 uh, 10 journalists in that part we are working like uh, other uh, consortium consortium that that means that we are financed by different foundations and uh, this is very uh, open for us. We're discussing very openly. So you can see the list of all our funders in our website and the money they give to us. Because, of course, we know that we are uh, not funded only, only uh, with our readers, but uh, we want to be totally transparent on who is funding us and that they have no control in our, the story we pick or the, res- the result of our research. But of course, we can be financed too by our readers because more and more readers accept to give us uh, money. So mm-hmm. uh, if you uh, like our work, uh, well, don't hesitate to to give even a small amount. But if you can, you can give big amounts as well. Thank you very much. Last year, we already got more than 30,000 euros from small donations. This was the Investigate Euro podcast. Thank you, Leila. My name is Oliver Moldenhauer. And next time you hear Sindhuri Nandakumar again on this podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.